Chapter Twenty of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Twenty, An Eventful Afternoon. It was not a common occurrence for the Chiltons to have family jars at the dinner table. It is true, Mister Chilton was inclined at times to be somewhat irascible, but his wife was an adroit manager. She was skilled in turning the conversation at just the right instant whenever unpleasant subjects were broached, so that peace instead of discord was the rule. And this, not because she was naturally more amiable than her husband, she might say sharp things in private, but it was vulgar to wrangle before others, especially servants. At the same time Mrs. Chilton was not a quarrelsome woman. She preferred always that life should be without frictions when it was possible to live so, and yet accomplish her purposes. Elsie struggled hard during the remainder of the meal to maintain her composure. She could not trust herself to speak again, but her stepmother began to tell a piece of news on another subject which relieved her from the necessity of speaking. She managed to keep back the tears till she had escaped to her own room, and there they poured forth in floods. She had been a petted child, accustomed to take her own way about things. This sudden and violent interference with her plans by her father was bewildering, he had not spoken to her in that authoritative manner since she was quite young, when on rare occasions he had thought it necessary to employ loud, harsh tones in checking a wayward fit. Perhaps the one being in the world whom she loved almost to idolatry was her father. He was usually so fond and indulgent that the rough words he had spoken cut her like a knife. What did it all mean? How had she displeased him? In her distress she entirely forgot her engagement for the evening, until a servant came to say that Mr. Palmer was waiting for her. She hastily penciled a note begging him to excuse her, saying that circumstances had suddenly arisen which would detain her at home. He seemed so vexed and disappointed that Mrs. Chilton went up to try to persuade Elsie to come down. "'What is all this?' she said. "'Alec thinks your conduct very strange, no doubt. If you have decided not to go out, why do you not come down and see him?' If you do not feel like dancing this evening, it is just as well to remain at home, perhaps, since you have been so foolish as to get into a fracas with your father. And yet I am afraid that will not do either. Alec will be offended. Come down at once and explain to him. Elsie almost said, He would not understand or sympathize with me if I should. But she was preserved from making that remark, and only murmured, as she lifted a tear-stained face, Oh, I cannot see him to-night. "'Sure enough, you are not fit to see him. "'What a fright you have made of yourself. "'Such an ado as you make about a little thing. "'Just a perfect child you are, "'to go and cry your eyes out "'because your father spoke crosswise to you. "'But what are you going to do? "'Here is Alec insisting on seeing you a moment. "'If you had only told him you were not well.' "'But I am well, Mamma. "'That would not be true. "'There is some more of your fanaticism.' You did not used to be so over-scrupulous. I do not much wonder that your father loses his temper. I would not know you for the same girl you were a year ago. Mrs. Chilton was dressed to go out, and Elsie could not but notice what a very beautiful woman her stepmother was, especially when her graceful form and brilliant face were set off by black velvet and diamonds, as to-night. Then, with a sigh, it came to her for the first time in her life that beauty and elegant clothes were of so little worth compared with beauty of spirit. How she would love to have a dear mother to flee to with her perplexities! What would it matter how plain her dress or face might be, 
if only the wise, loving mother heart were there. It was certainly true that this girl was not the same person she had been a few months ago. Then she would have resented such words and replied with haughtiness. None of these thoughts came to the surface, though, as she said in gentle tones, I am sorry to make so much trouble, but will you excuse me to Alec and tell him that I cannot see him tonight? Perhaps I am foolish, but I cannot seem to help it. When my father speaks so to me, it almost breaks my heart. The words ended in a sob, to which the stepmother made answer in her very coldest tones. Elsie, you would better go to bed and stay there. Then she swept downstairs where she said to Alec Palmer, The dear child is suffering with a nervous headache and really cannot see anybody tonight. I have persuaded her to retire at once, and probably she will be quite well in the morning. Alec Palmer was an imperious young man and thought much of his dignity. Mrs. Chilton did not like the ominous way in which he drew his brows together, nor the utter silence with which he received her words, although she made them as sweet and gracious as possible. She looked after him as he went down the steps, thinking within herself, What a fool the girl is! She deserves to lose him, trifling with him in this fashion. She had felt vexed enough with Elsie to tell Mr. Palmer the whole story, but restrained herself, resolving that nothing should be done by herself to imperil their relations. The Chiltons were an old and honorable family, but the Palmers were older and wealthier. An alliance with that family was not to be put in jeopardy, and there was need of great care during these days. There was no telling what queer whim Elsie would take next, and all because of those Remingtons, narrow-minded people, who had more zeal than knowledge. It was too vexatious." It was the next evening, after a day of unrest and troubled thought, that Elsie went down to Mrs. Remington's. A talk with her pastor, or his wife, would help her, she was sure. Aunt Hannah was alone in the back parlor, enjoying her knitting and her book. Mrs. Remington had retired with a severe headache, the outcome of twenty-seven calls, and Mr. Remington was out. "'But sit down and stay a while with me, do,' Aunt Hannah said, pushing a willow rocker toward her. "'You always seem so happy,' Elsie said with a little sigh, as she sank into the chair. "'And why not? Did you think it was only young people who were happy, my dear?' the old lady said, with a brisk air. "'Oh, no, they are not always happy. But people who are growing old have not life before them. Things with them are nearly done for, this world at least.' "'I could preach a long sermon on that subject.' said Aunt Hannah, pushing back her glasses and bestowing a kindly look on the fair, sweet face upon which her sharp eyes detected a slight cloud. I could tell you how old people have more leisure and ease. They have passed through the sorrows and trials of life and left them behind. It is all very well to be young and to be starting out in life, but it is nice to be getting near home, too. Don't you know when a ship starts out on a long voyage, the passengers are very chirked, and full of life when they start, but they are never quite so happy in all their lives again as when that ship is homeward bound. Now, I take it that is the way it ought to be with a Christian who is coming alongside the other shore. What a pretty thought, Aunt Hannah. I shall never see a ship leave the harbor again without remembering it. That is a consideration to be thought of, that you have gone through the trials of life. I just begin to see, too, why you should have had troubles so that you will know how to help others when theirs begin. I have had such a merry, happy life, a good deal like a bird or a butterfly, 
until I began to try to be a more earnest Christian. Now troubles seem to be springing up all about me. I have so many temptations, and I am full of perplexities and doubts. Do you think that is strange? Not a bit. As long as people live careless lives, Satan is not going to trouble his head with them. It is those who are striving to follow closely he is most concerned about. What shall one do, Aunt Hona, in a case of this kind? Suppose a girl has come to feel that certain amusements interfere with her spiritual life, and her friends do not approve of her giving them up, really insist that she shall take part in them. If she insists in her determination, what becomes of the fifth commandment? If the daughter is, say, twenty years old, said Aunt Hannah, and able to judge of what injures her spiritual life, I should say she must follow her conscience. Christ must not be dishonored, whatever comes. At the same time she can so honor her parents in all things else, and be such a good, loving daughter, that they shall be convinced it was not merely obstinacy that governed her. Elsie made a brief introspection just then, and pronounced upon herself that she should have been more cheerful through that day before her father, and not have sat in gloomy silence at mealtimes. But, Aunt Hannah, said she, such a course would bring so much trouble into families, and how unhappy the one who caused it would be. The Lord Jesus never promised his followers that they should have no trouble in this world. He told them plainly, In this world ye shall have tribulation. Oh, why cannot people see things alike? said Elsie with a sigh. It would seem strange to suddenly start up and condemn amusements, which we have been brought up to think of as innocent, and which all one's friends hold to be so. It would make one appear singular and self-conceited, as if all but one's self were under condemnation. Why, Aunt Hannah, if I were to take such a stand, I should be fairly persecuted by my friends. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, said Aunt Hannah, smiling down at her. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. If you knew positively that your Heavenly Father was not pleased with certain of your practices, what would it be right for you to do? Hold on to them, or give them up? Give them up, of course, said Elsie. Well, child, isn't it a sure thing that he is not pleased to have you do what you feel comes between you and him? Why, I suppose the uneasiness you have felt about these things is God speaking to you through his Spirit to teach you his will. There can be no more doubt about what you are to do after you know his will. You have nothing to do with what comes of it. He will take care of that. That is a short way of settling it, Aunt Hannah, and for me it is settled. The question of dancing and card-playing. I shall give them up. I knew it would come to that, but it will be hard on account of what I shall have to meet. Yes, my dear, martyrs are not gone out of fashion. Only it is tongues instead of flames they must meet and overcome. My troubles do not stop there, said Elsie, with a wistful face and a broken voice. I am in great perplexity about something else. Do you know, Aunt Hannah, that the one to whom I am engaged will pour all sorts of ridicule upon what he calls my fanaticism when I take this stand I must? We have talked it over somewhat, and he is not in the least in sympathy with me in my desire to place my religious life on a higher plane. Is it wrong, do you think, for people to marry who do not agree on important things like this? How shall two walk together except they be agreed? The text said itself almost. 
Aunt Hannah looked startled when she heard it coming from her lips, but she must be true, and she added, Certainly, if there are any two in the world who should be one in principles and aims, it is those who are to spend their lives together. God meant it so. There is no happiness where a husband pulls one way and the wife another. Why should they wish to be together unless they are in harmony on what you might call the keynotes of life? It will only be one long discord. If a man and woman jar each other before marriage, a few words spoken by a minister is not going to change them. Aunt Hannah glanced pityingly, as she spoke, at the troubled young face, and was moved to add, But God can change people. Mr. Palmer may come to think just as you do. Oh, if he would! But no, if you knew him, you would see how hopeless it is. Dear child, you must pray about it all, and the Lord will guide you, Aunt Hannah said, as she gave her a good-night kiss, and when she folded the girl in her arms for an instant, she silently prayed that the dear young thing might be shielded from an unwise marriage. The next day Elsie started early in the afternoon to call upon one of the little scholars in her mission class who had been absent for a long time. Doing something for others, she hoped, might lighten for a time the unwanted depression which weighed down her spirits. The day was fine, and she was glad of the opportunity for thought which the long walk afforded. She remembered, as she knocked at the door of the dingy tenement house, that she had meant to bring a few flowers with her, but had forgotten them. Somebody else had been thoughtful, though, for on the pillow of the bed, where lay a white-faced little girl of seven or eight, was a lovely bunch of roses, and Earl Mason was talking with the mother. There were some fine oranges on the table, also, which had arrived when he did. Mr. Mason was superintendent of the large mission school, which little Nellie Forbes attended. This young man, from his busy life, abstracted two hours each day, which he consecrated to philanthropic work. Sometimes it was done at his desk, sometimes it was in the shape of a lecture on reform, and again it was a call upon the sick or desolate, as on this afternoon. A wide business career had opened, but the two hours were as faithfully given as though he had abundance of leisure. The child had been hurt, the mother told Elsie. Her spine was injured, and the doctor said it might be a long time before she could walk again. In the meantime, she would suffer much pain. "'You will use this for her comfort, won't you?' said Elsie, dropping a generous banknote into the mother's hand. "'I shall send Nellie a couple of pretty wrappers soon.' She thought, as she looked about the bare, forlorn room, and noticed the hollow eyes of the sad-faced mother, that a good many more things besides this should find their way there. Mr. Mason and Elsie walked home together, talking of the family and their destitution. "'Has Nellie no father?' Elsie asked. "'Oh, yes. Did you not know about the accident? I suppose the poor woman dislikes to speak about it. George Forbes is an excellent mechanic and makes a good living when sober, but he has been under special temptations, latterly, his wife tells me. Since the large saloon near the foundry has been opened, he is constantly asked to drink by fellow workmen, so that for the last six months he has been doing badly. He has spent his wages and nearly stripped the house of furniture. It has all gone into that awful maw which swallows up everything within its reach. A few nights ago he came home intoxicated. His wife had gone out on an errand, and he seized Nellie and flung her against the side of the house with such force that it is a wonder he had not killed her. The little creature was crying out, Please, Papa, don't, when a policeman heard her screams and rushed in to her rescue. 
she may feel the effects of it all her life. That is just a little page from the long story of Rum's doings, Miss Chilton. Oh, it is dreadful. Poor little Nellie, said Elsie under her breath. Can nothing be done to stop this awful business? It may be, Mr. Mason said, that this ward will not obtain a license next year. We are working hard to save it. That will benefit this family not only, but scores of others. There are many men in this locality who would be sober and industrious if the accursed stuff were not placed in a tempting form before them every time they pass. The sight and smell are too much for them. And if license to sell is secured, then there will be no help? Elsie asked anxiously. Not unless we can break up the establishment. If we could get property owners in the ward to refuse to rent their buildings for this purpose, it would be a great kindness to the men who work in the foundry. Where is the saloon? Elsie asked, lifting her eyes to the tall buildings. There, on the corner, in the brick block. Why, why, she exclaimed in astonishment, her face paling and flushing by turns, that is my father's block. He would not rent it for any such low purposes. Of course he does not know it is being used so. I will speak to him about it at once. I am sure he would have been obliged to you if you had informed him, Mr. Mason. A pity for the guileless girl kept the young man silent. It is horrible, Elsie went on, that in this country, so boasted for its grandeur and power, the law cannot prevent vile places being opened on every corner to entrap men who will go crazy with drink and then half kill their children. It makes me positively angry. I feel as if I could not endure it. Poor Nellie. She was such a bright, happy little creature, and now her life is spoiled. Mr. Mason could hardly believe his senses, that this was Miss Chilton, whom he had believed to be a mere society girl, haughty and selfish. Even her appearance as a teacher in the mission school he had supposed to be a whim of the hour, a spasmodic playing at benevolence, which was one of the modern phases of society. Yet her eyes were actually filled with tears, and her whole being was deeply moved. "'You do well to be angry,' he said. "'It is righteous indignation. Would that every man and woman who call themselves Christian shared it. Then we might hope to wipe the curse from the land.' I'm ashamed to say that I know very little about the subject, but it cannot be possible that Christians are not doing all in their power to put it away with the greatest dispatch. You talked just now about their obtaining licenses. Surely good men do not deliberately give permission to anybody to sell an article that turns men into maniacs. That would be too absurd and inconsistent. Is not all selling of it against the law? I am very ignorant, she added, deprecatingly, as she saw a smile hover about Mr. Mason's eyes. I was amused at the unconscious irony of your remark. One would naturally think as you do, but such is not the case. License to sell is given, to men of good moral character, is the wording of it, by the payment of a certain sum. But, said Elsie excitedly, a man of good moral character would be ashamed to sell anything to Nellie's father that would make him knock the breath out of her. He is a murderer, and the man who sells it is a murderer, and the man who gives the license— Again Mr. Mason was silent for a moment. This artless girl had evidently no thought that she was pronouncing condemnation upon her own father. Then he said, In other words, it is sin from the beginning to the end of it. This visit has had one effect upon me, said Elsie. Henceforth, as far as I can, 
I shall give my life to help take away this evil out of the land. Her face was glowing, and the look which Mr. Mason bestowed upon her was admiration, blended with reverence. Earl Mason forgot that he was on that crowded street, and possibly the object of curious eyes. He extended his hand, his own face lighted up with surprise and pleasure, as he said in low tones, God be thanked. They clasped hands an instant. Then Elsie raised her head and met a pair of eyes which had witnessed the little scene. They belonged to Alec Palmer. They were very haughty eyes just then, and his bow was extremely cold. He passed on, and Elsie stepped into the car. End of chapter 20